one ticket for And Why Not, please. and the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine and we're back for a new series of chats about the movies we love. Uh, each episode I'm joined by a guest who has picked a film that they love and we talk about it and what it means to them and why. Sort of, anyway. Um, for this episode, first episode back, I was joined by my friend and fellow film enthusiast and filmmaker uh, Ross Beamish as we talk Mission Impossible. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat and as always, uh, keep the film talk going in the comments wherever you see this episode posted. Uh, thanks in advance for listening. Now let's roll the trailer. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. Should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. Ethan Hunt will be your point man as usual. Good luck, Jim. Simple game. Is he serious? Always. It's much worse than you think. We're being ambushed. Abort, that's an order. They knew, they knew we were coming. Do you read me? I don't care how he did it. I want to know why he did it. You're worried about me. Why you survived? I'm sure we can find something I have that you need. No one sent me. These guys are trained to be ghosts. Let's not waste time chasing after him. Let's make him come to us. Find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. seen me very upset this tape will self-destruct in five seconds hello ross how are you hello Stuart. i am good thank you very much for having me on your podcast it is an honor and a pleasure ah you say that now wait till it goes out but <laughs> no thank you for coming on and uh yeah thank you for talking about this film as well because i thoroughly enjoyed revisiting it again so um, i mean uh, you you and i have been talking about this film for the best part of like 20 years i think so yeah i, th- I about- think one of the first things we bonded over was a particular scene in this film so <laughs> which no doubt we will do a proper deconstruct on before uh the end of this podcast but yeah, yeah. Been, i'll tell you i've been looking forward to talking to you about this on your podcast for uh well since you invited me about yeah, sort of so towards the end of last year wasn't it yeah yeah muted the idea around um awesome so anyway yeah for the benefit of those who didn't check the description on this episode or even the title the film we're talking about at this time is mission impossible um the 1996 brian de palma film written by david kep robert town and Stephen. not even going to try the surname zalian zalian that sounds right um yeah starring tom cruise john voigt emmanuel barrett henry was his name who played kittridge John Reno, Ving Rhames, 
It's Kristen Scott Thomas and Vanessa Redgrave. See, in all the time we were having those technical issues, I should have looked up Kittredge's name again. <laughs> well done. You'll notice for the second time I stay completely silent <laughs> when you're doing that. Your listeners won't know this, but we, we did the first 30 minutes of this. Yeah, but uh, it didn't record because Skype's got issues. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't record, so we're doing it again. So we're on the dread Zoom. Um, yeah, anyway, it was released in cinemas in the US on the 22nd of May, 1996. We got it a couple of months later on the 5th of July of the same year. Um, it grossed $457,696,391 and changed worldwide and uh, on an estimated budget of $80 million, according to IMDb. Um, Roger Ebert gave the star three that gave the star gave the film three stars out of four, saying the bottom line on a film like this is Tom Cruise looks cool, holds our attention while doing uh, neat things that we don't quite understand, doing them so quickly and with so much style that we put our questions on hold and go with the flow, which I think is fair. Um, this, um, it's it's very much a Tom Cruise looking cool doing things that I know there are some people who say that the plot's so convoluted that they really couldn't follow it, but. I'd, I'd say Eva absolutely nailed it there. Yeah. See, um, often does. It's, it's always um, difficult, Roger, but even when he praises a film, find an actual glowing little soundbite that he actually said. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, I gave the film four stars out of four, but I'm still going to do the one really good blurb is me slagging it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, so Mission Impossible came out in 96. Were you there in the cinema in 96? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to uh, have uh, a solo experience. It was probably my first time of going to the movies on my own, actually. And it was, I, th- I can't remember the exact scenario because I would have been probably about 14 because it was in the summer, wasn't it, of 96. Yeah. So I was right 14 and a half. And I think it was something like my sister had gone to watch a movie and I was way younger than me and I wasn't really interested in watching what she was watching. And uh, Mission Impossible was, as we'll talk about, no doubt, a bit later, the, the big summer blockbuster. Um, so I'd had plenty of uh, TV trails and um, TV spots to whet my appetite for it. And it was within 10 or 20 minutes starting time of her movie. So I got my popcorn and my, my Coca-Cola and went and sat and watched this movie on my own. And um, had it sounds a bit uh, passe to say, but I had quite a profound experience watching it. No, I don't think that's passe at all. I usually find it's the... Uh films people least expect that are when you have that sort of yeah. film wake, awakening experience kind of thing. It's like people are usually like, well, shouldn't it be Citizen Kane or a Hitchcock or something like that? It's like, no, fuck you. It was, <laughs> it was this. It was, well, so as, as, as I've told you in the past before, um, my, I mean, my, my life, I'm a film teacher now and um, my life largely revolves as, for as long as I can remember around movies and, and films and popular culture and so forth. And um, the very first, the, the, the experience that was the most profound for me and set me on my direction was back in 89 and I went to see um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which because of this singular experience is my favourite film. But that's to talk about that, we'll do that another day maybe. Yeah. Um, but the, the actual experience that really shaped it was when um, going to see it in the cinema, which was now the Regal in Gloucester, which some of your listeners may know but maybe not so familiar with it when it was actually a cinema and seeing it with my dad and my uncle and there's the final scene uh, approaching the climax with the, the leap of faith with the um the camera pivot where we see the forced perspective move with and that just blew blew me away as a as an eight-year-old I think I was then 
Um, but the, going back to Mission Impossible, the this probably the, the next most profound moment after that, funnily enough, came from this film. And it was towards, again, in that final, uh, approaching the, the, the climax of this action movie, just like it was with Indiana Jones. And the camera starts, it's just when the, the train is approaching the, the channel, tunnel, and it's going through the English countryside, speeding along, and it's the, the scene starts with a great big, wide, establishing shot of the scene. And the camera tracks in and tracks in and tracks in and tracks in right up to the window, and it follows it like an impossible shot. And I remember at that point, suddenly having this moment of realisation, uh, I thought to myself, I'm watching a film here. And that wasn't because it was bad. It was because it was such an amazing film that I'd forgotten I was watching a film. I just literally f fell into the, the diegesis of the world in my mind. And it was just because I went, hang on a second, that's impossible. I suddenly realised <laughs> I was watching a movie. And I think I kind of like rekindled my love for movies yet again. So I love when movies does that. It's like that bit in, have you ever seen Get Shorty? Yeah. The bit where he's watching Touch of Evil in the cinema and that, and he's just leant forward in his chair and he's so engrossed in it and he's talking along to the dialogue with it. I and quite right. that anyone, when a film makes you do that. And I'm sure many of you, if not all of your listeners, will have shared that moment. I think, actually, I'm a film studies teacher, so it's those moments where that art form touches your soul like that in yeah. a way that's very, very human. Um, i better stop now because otherwise I'll just be going on and on and ranting <laughs> on and on about it how important film is and so forth. But uh, maybe you could do an extended cut one day that takes yeah. like 12 hours. <laughs> Probably want to get back to Mission Impossible. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you were lucky. You got to see it in the cinema. I um, I missed out, unfortunately, because it was when they used to do the One Pound Cinema Sunday. Yeah. And it must have been in the month of July, and I went to watch that, not thinking that, you know, the biggest film going. Tickets are only a quid. Of course, it's going to be sold out. <laughs> And I can't remember what the one film that they did have tickets for, but I could not, they had no interest in seeing it. So I think it was me and Andy went. I think we just went home in the end and rented a video. But oh no. So you went all the way there to see the, the biggest action movie of the summer and then just ended yeah, up walking all the way back. Ended, anyway. ended up catching the bus back to his house and renting a video. So. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I eventually saw it on, I bought it on video when it came out because I think I was working at Tesco's by then because I even had the. They had one of those boxes that they used to put on tills where they put six copies of the film in it. Yeah. So I even had that with the plan that if they made sequels, I was going to put all my videos lined up in that and have this awesome little Mission Impossible presentation. But um, obviously video died quite quickly after that. So, um, yeah, but I, I bad the fuck out of that video. I absolutely loved that film. I was so excited to see it because that was the year I'd started buying Empire. I remember the picture of Tom Cruise jumping out of the window with the um, fish tank exploding yeah. behind him. And that whole thing was just like, that looks fucking amazing. It was. It was something special in that, that scene. I mean, how young we were now in the days where he's stapling himself to the side of a plane. And <laughs> yeah, but it was, that film is, uh, it's got the full package for me. Um, and of course, no doubt we'll have a, a deep dive into that scene with the shot that we will we'll talk about later. That whole um, scene is my touch of evil thing. No matter what I'm doing, if I'm channel hopping and it's on that scene on telly, I'm just instantly in there with them. I'm in that restaurant. I love that. It's really disappointing when you actually watch the behind the scenes thing. Because obviously movie <laughs> magic, it's all different elements cut together kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but just Tom Cruise jumping out onto the uh, little crash pad thing. <laughs> but I've got to say that this movie, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm a 
film teacher and you know or highbrow movies and all this kind of stuff but um i know it's an action movie from the mid 90s with tom cruise star vehicle um and in fact i use it to teach uh, about film industry and about the hollywood history and the hollywood model of uh, summer blockbusters and so forth and we use tom cruise as a as an example of just looking at the history of his movie posters where um, when he when he first started appearing on posters and his name was on there and it was very small it was maybe third in line or fourth in line or fifth in line and he was just part of an ensemble cast and then slowly but surely he became top billing but he was still with somebody else and then we hit this period uh, we were talking before about how the, the beauty of the poster actually but if you can recall it if it, it's just his head it's just the silhouette of his of his head um, and it looks damn cool but uh, it's it is it was really indicative of that peak period of of Tom Cruise, kind of towards the end of his like young, ascribed to be his younger self before yeah. he went to ultimate mega stardom. But this was this was like his peak younger period. Um, but aside from all of the, the, the kind of action element of it just being um, a really exciting film, especially for a teenage boy to go and watch, and, and my God, wasn't it? The marketing, the hell of, the hell of yeah. it was just blown. Uh, TV spots and that huge explosion shot towards the, the climax, of course, was just all over the place. Um, but as a, as a piece of film, it's brilliant. And when I, when I first start teaching film to my new students, um, we talk about the micro features and essentially it's film language. So we've got cinematography, editing, sound design, mise-en-scene, aesthetics, performance, um, really the, 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 the small micro elements of film that all combine together to create film language. And I always use this film to teach these elements. And you can teach them, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes of this part of the film um for cinematography and the next bit for sound design and so forth and that works equally well or you can just combine them all together and brian de palma it's a master class of just all of these different filmic elements working together yeah i mean that's the thing and with you, this film it, it could easily be dismissed as just another generic you know no offense to philip and um, noise and that but um he was generic 90s thriller guy. Like I say, no disrespect to him at all. He's very good at what he did. But this sort of has the prestige of being a Brian De Palma film. Never mind the Tom Cruise factor in itself. This is Brian De Palma at peak Brian De Palma as well. Yeah. And, um, and we... it, it sort of gives it that extra bit of gravitas that it possibly it would have we... got if it was a, you know. So before we were talking about De Palma and the, the films that he did earlier in his career, which he did loads, and they, were, they came in very, very quick succession as well. So I'm just cheating here by looking at his IMDb page. Um, but just from, um, say, the early 70s through to the, the early to mid 80s, there's probably about 15 to 20 films here, including big movies like Carrie, of course, from 1976, um, 1983 with Scarface. And then... Um, the Untouchables was was uh, one that was really in my um, my awareness of the zeitgeist of the the late eighties. Even as a, someone who was just just about seven, eight, or nine then, with with um, how how prevalent that was in culture. 
That's it. And his and first then, dipping his toe into doing a big screen adaptation of a TV series. With big action set pieces yeah. as well, um, which which are also iconic and have been, no doubt we'll talk about parody <laughs> and how that, you know, and how he, those set, that, that famous train sequence with uh, Andy Garcia and he's, you know, sliding along on the floor to put his foot up on, um, which is a parody, with the, which is replicating shots from things like Battle, Battleship Potemkin, yeah. of course. So, you know, it's, it's all homaging back and homaging back and homaging back. But, um, and then, of course, when, when we were talking about when um, this film came out, it the previous film, I was, I, it makes sense now, but I was surprised that it was Carlito's Way. Um, yeah. But it wasn't, it's it was directly his previous film, but it was still three years prior. Yeah, I love Carlito's way. On a side note, yeah. <laughs> Carlito Brigante. I just murdered that impression, by the way. So. Any bunker from the Bronx? <laughs> yeah, maybe you can. Yeah, maybe you can uh, like dub in actually the the, the, the dialogue from the film rather than <laughs> me embarrassing myself with that one. Um, and then straight after Mission Impossible was Snake Eyes. And then following that, mission was Mission to Mars, which of course a big action-based movie. So it was sort of his last um, big studio one, wasn't it? Mission to Mars. And then after that, it's Black Dahlia, and then he largely seems to go for straight. Well, things that ended up going straight to DVD or straight to Sky Movies, kind of. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I've, like I said, I teach sixth formers, um, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds film studies, and very few of them, if any, really know who he is. And the last film that I remember of any significance really coming out, and it wasn't that even that significant, was The Black Dahlia. Yeah. Um, which I happen to really love. I think it's very, I love that opening scene as uh, shot in the opening scene with the jib shot with the camera where it starts in the, the neighbourhood and then lifts up and lifts over the, you know, all the kids are playing and everything and it's just one single take and then it lifts up over the top of the the houses and over the freeway and then drops down to see the dead body. And yeah. We see, that's, would, that's we, the, sorry. <laughs> so I was just going to say really quickly that that, that is... Though that that to me was classic De Palma cinematography yeah. and camera work and he he exhibits... All of that and so much more in Mission Impossible, which is our film of choice, obviously, to talk yeah. about. We've got amazing static shots with the camera, with the just classic use of camera angles to build tension um, right up to our favourite shot. The, do you want to <laughs> tell, tell everyone the name of it? The, the, the Kittredge shot. It's called the Kittredge shot in that famous scene with the... With the uh, fish tank exploding and where the camera just gets in, just almost impossibly low impossibly tight and canted at the same time it's, it's, at the, it's, peak it's the first time in decades probably that the dutch tilt has looked as cool as it has oh my god it's just it's just epic and I've, i i must admit whenever i've tried to make my own little shorts and i've always tried to replicate that and always failed yeah so. I, I remember doing a uh whatever the short was we did in the pub across the road from where i used to live and talking in mm. that about getting in the Kittred shot. But, yeah, we got it. That's that's my homage to this, to, to De Palma, but also to this film. But also, it's not just a series of static shots, obviously, within this. I mean, I mentioned to before about my profound moment where I, with this impossible... Yeah, it's a CGI shot, but it was, it was still using uh, practical elements. Um, but so many other shots including the ballroom scene as well which has incorporates pov shots and and in really graceful dolly shots and and steady cam shots uh, all incorporating in in there he he really it, 
this film exemplifies such a beautiful range of cinematography. Uh, and we're just talking about one element of film here. Yeah. We, could, we should give time also to, to all the other elements that are combined together. But See, the thing for me that I love about De Palma, and it's on display in The Untouchables, on display in this as well, and all his films, is he is a master at showing you where all the pieces are that you need to be paying attention yeah. to. So that train scene, you know where everybody is. Even the Kittrich scene, you know where all the pieces are. You know about the fish tank. It shows you the gum when you need to see the gum. He um, shows you where Kittrich is. He shows you where Ethan Hunt is in regard to the window. It's like and it's little cutaways as well. Just real. So it's not necessarily subtle, but it's just beautifully timed. Where he, where where Hunt takes the uh, chewing gum out of his pocket and he just yeah. folds it ready, doesn't he? And you can, and then the ten, it cuts back to his face and his. You, you know, you've never seen me very upset. Uh, and flicks the, and then the the, the shot to the um, waiter as well with the look of horror on his face. <laughs> um, he, I think you've nailed it there. Is just how well he is able to use the camera to position the audience within the geography of the this this room and like you said it's movie magic it's obviously just, yeah. just complete well, you're not even really aware of the fact that you're aware of the geography of the room it's like even the ballroom when the team are all off in different places you know where Emilio Estevez is you know and but I think I think that's one of the reasons why I had that moment where I just had fallen into this movie yeah because um, I can't remember where I'd heard it, but it was I'd heard a theory that one of the reasons that film is such a prevalent art form and such an important art form for cultures that are so disparate around the world, but we all seem to fall in love with film. It doesn't matter what language you speak, we all speak the language of film. And one of the reasons could be is because it shares, particularly in, in editing language, it shares great similarities with the way that we process dreams. Yeah. And the way that you fall into a dream and you, 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 when you're in a dream, it's that classic line from um, Inception, isn't it? You don't know that you're in the dream. <laughs> and if you've had that experience where you've fallen into a film, you've fallen essentially into this dream. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, there's no better feeling than just becoming so engrossed in a film that everything else falls away. I mean, it's not great when you've got kids around you, but, you know. <laughs> it's, that's survive. the tonic. That's, what, that's why. That's <laughs> what we're supposed to be doing when the kids are in. Watching a movie. Homework, it's not best to watch a movie. But. Well, <laughs> but, you can come and study film, and then that's part of the homework. But, um, well, you know, also just the opening of the film is quite an unconventional one where we've got the, um, the it starts basically in a, a mid-shot, if I to recall, because we've got that set piece where he... Uh, before the classic reveal that he pulls off his face and he's interrogating that guy. Yeah. Um, and of course, then the walls pull back and it's a fake, it's a fake set because it's it, it's throwing us into the world of the spy. Which I like to think they um, homaged in Fallout. I'm sorry? But I like to think they've homaged that in Fallout when they've got the guy in the hospital oh, yeah, room yeah. and they trick him into unlocking the thing and then the Blitzer yeah. comes in. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah. This film's sort of briefly sort of taken it within the franchise as a wider thing. This film sort of it's the odd one out with regard to the films that came, but I also think it's a nice bridge between the TV series and then what followed. I mean, if you take out the Apple laptops and the news anchors and that stuff, yeah. this film's got a really nice timeless feel to it. There's nothing that particularly dates it. Like I say, beyond the Apple Mac. Yeah, no, particularly well, and, um, and the old Sky. We talked about the 480 risk 
<laughs> risk chip. I'll go over, you know, his, what's his his payment is he gets to keep the laptop. And yeah. we're like, yeah, mate, don't worry. Just go to the charity shop and get one of those things. So he says, fine. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, I actually, it, well, there's certain elements that date it, of course. So, like, at the very end, when he's, he's on the Virgin Atlantic flight, whatever, and he puts the tape in. When he comes out of the pub, it's just so 90s for me. I don't know why, <laughs> but it instantly transports me back to mid-90s. <laughs> But it's not with the Cranberry soundtrack on it, but um, well, yeah. which is great. It's a lovely scene, and he's drink, I think he's drinking Guinness as well, which is quite a nineties kind of like Irish pub style uh, little callback. But um, I know what you mean about it being timeless in the sense that it feels now it still is such a slick film. Yeah, right. There's that one. So it's timeless in the sense that you it's still exciting to watch now. It's still really gripping. It's still got. A, um, even in its slow moments, the pace of it is just really engrossing. And I know that it got a lot, of, a lot of flack at the time for being. It was because it was billed as an action movie, wasn't it? Well, yeah, because I, mean, I watched so... the trailer before we recorded this, and the three big action beats are in the trailer, cut multiple times to look like different ones. So the hanging from the ceiling in Langley, the fish tank scene, and the train scene at the end—they heavily cut that train scene into multiple different bits. So, so I think a lot there's of, more action going on. But it's one of those things that I like smart people doing their jobs kind of thing. I love those things. It's what yeah. I always liked about the early Jack Ryan films before they tried to make him a bit Jason Bourne. Is that yeah. he because he is just an analyst, it's a guy looking at data and fucking figuring shit out. And I love that. And if yeah. it's done right, it can be more exciting than him sort of getting in a fist fight. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, there's those moments of tension, they don't need to be um because like in this later film, spoilers for the later films, if you haven't watched a film that's been out for like two or three years or whatever, but you know, we like the, the worry of nuclear bomb going off yeah. and so but it could just be the fact that the their, their cover's going to get blown yeah. by the security guard coming in. And that, that harks back to, I think, uh, the, the integrity in the, and the, the, of the originals. Yeah where it was smaller scale and it was like there were big issues there were like hundreds of these spies that were going to have their identities um exposed and it was you know the subtext was that they were all in these really dangerous situations all over the world just embedded trying to save our lives and what was going to cause them to 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 have their identities shown was just because one of the imf guys was going to get caught um because Emilio Estevez couldn't get the doors open in time, you know, and it's like, I wish, by the way, I've really, that's the one regret I've got about that film. I wish he'd have been in it a bit more. Cause um, was, I think Tom Cruise, cause I remember an interview with him from a couple of years ago. I can't remember whether I read it in empire, whether it was on something else, but he was saying that his one regret is that they killed the team off too early. But I, I quite liked it. Cause you, even though you don't, I quite liked that Luther and um, John Reno and that are on the train together. Yeah, um, and you don't need to see because there was originally an elaborate thing when breaking Luther out of prison, all this, and they just decided, no, fuck it, let's just have him on the train. And I no, think that's that great. Perfectly. No, it did. But, it did the Game of Thrones thing before Game of Thrones had the <laughs> to do it. You know, you know, it just got rid of them, and it's like, hang on a second, no one's safe in here. I mean, Tom Cruise is obviously safe because we've seen him jumping off and exploding. Uh, so it's it's killing the kid in Jaws, isn't it? It's like if his whole yeah. team's been fucking wiped yes. out, then all bets are off. It's like, plus you've killed Jim Phelps, who was the guy, the lead from the TV series, admittedly played by a different actor, because um, Peter Graves didn't want to return once he found out that Phelps was going to be revealed as the bad guy. Yeah. Um, we um, we're on that. Where do you stand on the... I don't know how much of a fan of the TV series you were, but where do you stand on them making Phelps the bad guy? I Well, 
for me, I think we were talking about this a while ago, and we, I, I was saying that my familiarity with Mission Impossible was quite passing when I was a kid. I mean, it, probably it was say repeats on Channel Four, that sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, along along with Happy Days and, yeah. and Wonder Years and things like that. It was it was on in the background. It's not that I didn't sit because we were saying that back in then we, we were we had four channels and we were happy <laughs> and we were glad for them and whatever. So basically, you kind of watch what you got but they were obviously they were our dad's entertainment weren't they they were they were shows that and by then it was a little bit stuffy yeah. so i didn't i had a familiarity with the names and the, something about the characters and the premise obviously is self-explanatory um but I, I i'd no, argue the theme was more famous than the program yeah i mean personally i had no stock in the characters no. i had stock in the anticipation and the excitement that i was going to as you said going to get something intelligent and something interesting with some pretty cool kick-ass action in there as well which would appeal to a teenager um so how did you feel about that i think as a, i mean it's difficult because i had nothing invested in phelps i mean if it suddenly turned out in mission impossible 10 that ethan hunt had gone like you know and become the bad guy I'd possibly feel the same way that fans of the TV series did. Um, yeah. But I think for the film, you needed that. You needed somebody that you had some form of recognition with, even if it was just tangential recognition from vague yeah. members of watching the TV show. So yeah, because think... otherwise you're just slapping the name of, of a, a TV show onto something that's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, so I think you needed that. Um, I mean, you can view it as a continuation of the TV series or you can view it as its own thing, in which case it's not the Jim Phelps you grew up with. It's a new Jim Phelps. And, you know, given how John Voight's turned out in recent years, I've got no problem with it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, quite right. I mean, I liked the character of Jim Phelps. It's that thing, though. You're supposed to like him, aren't you? And then... So you the feel the betrayal from that. But, yeah, I think if it had been Kittredge was the... I mean, he's the obvious one. It's a bit like Snape in Harry Potter films being the bad guy in the first book. It wouldn't work because you've been all the way through. You're like, well, he's the obvious choice. Um, so I think if because you're designed not to particularly like Kittredge, because obviously he's the antagonist going after Ethan Hunt. And, you know, well, um, personally, I thought John Voight did a great job as the. the I did. Yeah. I mean, John Voight's an amazing bit. actor. <laughs> I, did, I just could never, even then, I could never quite get my head around the fact he had that. The wife, as young as she was, as beautiful as she was, it just it's, didn't quite. It's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That was the one little bit of suspension of disbelief, I think, that just really, uh, you know, forget the whole exploding um, helicopter flying through the Channel Tunnel. I could buy that nine I times mean, out of ten. To be fair, I grew up on those last few Roger Moore Bond films, and it's the same issues. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Touche. Um, yeah. yeah, I love, I love that scene you know where. where um, he finally meets up with Phelps again and Phelps is explaining that it's Kittredge, but Ethan Hunt's playing out in his head the way it actually happened. Yes, yes. I mean, again, that's masterful editing and there was, if you just listen to the subtle use of sound designers in that scene as well, um, the soundtrack play. I mean, you you say these things, I've seen this film so many times. Yeah. I can almost, it's a bit like Fight Club. I've taught Fight Club for years and years and it's probably seen about 60 times. I bet yeah. if you said that a few seconds of that, I could probably just rewind it in my head right now, but... <laughs> Um, the uh, we'll probably talk about where the franchise has gone right in a bit later in this yeah. conversation. You did mention about um, if Ethan Hunt was then to be changed to be a villain, and I've got some thoughts, not necessarily on that per se, but on where I think the direction of the franchise should have gone. But for the time being, with Mission Impossible, 
Um, some other aspects that I really admire about it was um, well, we, I, I guess you mentioned, I think you really nailed it a minute ago when you said about how um, it really, it, it was a smart movie and it was action-based and stuff, but it got you to think. And it, and I think it got a bit lambasted at the time because we mentioned about maybe the way it was marketed, it was marketed more as maybe a bit of a, a, a James Bond clone, but the dumber elements of that rather than yeah. the more thinking persons. And I think, I, I stand by this to this moment, I, I think that this is still the, the peak of the franchise, this first one. It's the franchise has grown away from what this film was. Um, it kind of course corrected after Mission Impossible 2, of course, but it and it's become its its distinct flavor of film. But yeah. I think still think that this is the best that the franchise offered. And the I guess it's a bit contemporary because of the recent release of the new Matrix film, but the 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 only other film of its era that really did this, and probably the last one, I think, that really married really great action with really quite cerebral philosophical thought and again that you could lose yourself in was the matrix the first yeah. matrix film so i think the two of those films actually share something quite in common um and of course they weren't that far apart were they matrix was what 99 yeah and this was yeah so three so years later yeah three years later and i can't yeah. really think of a... the mission impossible summer i think the only other big film i can clearly remember is independence day was the other big yeah. summer movie um that was sort of the summer thing started to change, I think. Obviously, the summer blockbuster had been a thing, but I think this was when it really went the summer mega blockbuster. Yeah, and, and that, the, that with was Independence the year of that. Day. Yeah. That's that's your young, dumb, and full of Will Smith. So <laughs> it's it, it was, and I think in some regards, that was marketed to be a little bit more cerebral than maybe it was. Did yeah. it, I remember watching because I was, this is the period when um, I was just utterly obsessed with the X Files and anything paranormal and aliens and UFOs. And then they, I think that that's one of the reasons why Fox had jumped on to green light that movie. I remember watching it and thinking that was okay, but it wasn't quite like what I was hoping to get for thinking. Yeah. And but Mission Impossible was not was everything opposite to that. I was expecting it to just be some shooting and some jumping around and yeah, it's um, and I mean I think it also sort of kicked off that brief period in the mid to late 90s where they started just reviving old TV series. So you had The Saint, The Mod Squad, Lost in Space, Avengers, all that sort of thing. As in, Steed and Peel Avengers, not, yeah. <laughs> not Marvel's Avengers. Yeah, um, And I should mention that, I, I'm talking of the Avengers, but the, the more modern Avengers, obviously the Marvel's Avengers. Um, it's not to say, I mean, I've got my thoughts on the Avengers uh, universe and everything. and um, I, I think there is a place for those movies. And it's not to say that they don't have intelligent things within them i think there are there's emotional intelligence within those movies you know there's a lot even movies like uh the guardians of the galaxy have a lot of truth to them from an emotional perspective but um and then you've got more kind of cerebral ones like the doctor strange ones um, to be honest with you i've probably seen about a five percent of all the marvel movies because well we'll talk about that another day maybe yeah but it, but they they don't hold a candle i don't think to Oh, we said the Matrix from '99, and then, but also Mission Impossible, where you, you, I think you picked a brilliant scene when you when you mentioned a minute ago about how um, Ethan Hunt is in his mind's eye thinking out the clues 
the the book of job from the, the drake hotel you know yeah. the, the, the and he's retracing the steps with the explosions and how claire has set the explosion off and jim but he can see in his mind that jim phelps has got the blood packs and the, yeah and and so forth and a, a bit later it's a little bit on the nose with i think mission impossible five or four when they go he is um what is he he's the what's that classic phrase he says he's the epitome he's the eventuality of oh um yeah i this the alec baldwin says it doesn't he in the fifth yeah one. He's like the the eventual something yeah. I'm butchering I, this, but yeah. he's he's like the equation of of just he's already figured it out before you've even thought of the question that kind of thing, and it's a little bit too much like he's a superhero at that point, like he's like uh, Sherlock Holmes time Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. But back then, that was just about for me the right balance of this guy's smart. I can see why he's a spy. He looks a bit young. <laughs> Yeah. And he's super athletic and he's amazing. It is like weird Tom we watch it and you're like, shit, Tom Cruise looks really young. Man. I mean, he doesn't look bad for a guy who's nearly 60 either, but oh, no. you're like, wow, he looks really fucking young there. And this, he's also younger than I am now. When he made that. <laughs> so that makes oh, me sad. How old was he when he was in Mission In Bristol? his 30s. Damn it. Might have he's... been late 30s, but as I'm now 42. <laughs> I hope he's, yeah, I turned 40 recently as well. I hope he's really late 40s in that one. <laughs> I'm going to look like him again. <laughs> That's it. You follow me? Yeah, I follow. I think we've lost enough agents for one night. You mean I've lost enough agents for one night? You seem hell-bent on blaming yourself, Ethan. <sighs> Who else is left? your point why was there another team what of IMF agents at the embassy tonight I don't quite follow you we'll see if you can follow me around the room the drunk Russians on the embankment at seven eight o'clock Couple waltzing around me at the embassy at nine and eleven. The waiter standing behind Hannah at the top of the stairs. Bow tie, twelve o'clock. The other IMF team. You're worried about me. Why? Well, for a little over two years, we've been spotting serious blowback in IMF operations. We have a penetration. The other day, we decoded a message on the internet from a Czech we know as Max. The arms dealer. That's right. Max, it seems, has two unique gifts, a capacity for anonymity and for corrupting susceptible agents. This time, he'd gotten to someone on the inside. He'd gotten himself in a position to buy our knock list, an operation he referred to as Job 314, the job he thought Galitzin was doing tonight. But the list Galitzin stole was a decoy. That's correct. The actual list is secure at Langley. Galitzin was a lightning rod. He was one of ours. This whole operation was a moment. This whole operation was a moment. Yeah. The mole's deep inside. 
And like you said, you survived. I'll show you something, Ethan. Since your father's death, your family's farm has been in receivership. Now, suddenly, they're flush with over 120 grand in the bank. Your father's illness was supposed to have wiped out that bank account. Dying slowly in America, after all, can be a very expensive proposition. So, why don't we quietly get out of here onto a plane? I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Aunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. I've been listening to the, I don't know if you've ever listened to it, the Light the Fuse podcast, which is all about the Mission Impossible franchise. They oh, do interviews with people and discuss like all the films across. They might have done TV series stuff as well. I must admit, I've cherry-picked the stuff I'm interested in first and then fill in the blanks. Um, but yeah, there was quite a good one with Brian De Palma that he said a couple of bits that I wasn't aware of sort of before listening to it. Um, like For example, the film originally, it went straight into the ballroom mission but they all get, they're trying to get the knock list. Oh, right. So the, the kind of preamble. Yeah, it was, the... um, George Lucas told him to put that in. He said, you need a bit where you tell people who's what, where they are, what they do. He's like, you need A little bit scene. like the opening to Raiders. Yeah. He's like, you need that debrief scene. Yeah. Um, so they went back and reshot that. And um, I always wondered, because it's weird in the wide shot, Kristen Scott Thomas is sort of slightly off to the side and not really in frame. Yeah, at times, and it's because she wasn't there. It was a body double, and they then because they did it all in reshoots, she would go on to something else, and then they picked up her close-ups. So I'm guessing the bit was with like her and Emilio Estevez and all that sort of thing. So that's why she looks oddly out of place with the rest of them in the wide shots. Um, but yeah, I I just assumed that was a natural. You're doing a Mission Impossible. You put the debris scene in. Um, yeah, well, it is now. Yeah, um, yeah, and the it's other a- thing. Oh, sorry, go on. sorry, no, carry on. No, I was going to ask, did, did De Palma ever explain why he had to so graphically show Emilio Estevez getting spiked in the face? He could have, like, cut a frame before. He but no, say, the whole thing. i got to admit, that's the one death that really bothers me, because it's like, if you just ducked or moved your head, I'm pretty <laughs> sure you could have survived, Emilio. I mean, to be fair... But he had that look pre- on his face, like, I'm fucking taking this thing on. <laughs> That, that is probably staring down a spike, but it's no, he's probably frozen in terror. But just it was that it was about three or four frames too many, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll remind you, I was like 14 on my own. <laughs> it's it's quite like, a nasty scene, isn't it? Because you actually see it go into his face, or not into go into his face. It's, I don't know, it's so well done. I don't know whether you actually see as much as you think you see, but you definitely see it in his face. I think so you see can... enough. I think I can imagine it now pretty graphically. I noticed it the other day watching it. It's like, that is actually probably fucking in there. It's not like it cuts away just before and your brain fills in the gap. It's like there and I think prop- it's actually proper, proper, properly method acted as well. So it wasn't like a dummy or anything. I mean, the rest of us. So no, I know I'm only in this a little bit. I'm going to do the whole scene. 
Perhaps Department just, was like, I fucking hate Mighty Ducks, you're getting the up. nasty death. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that. sorry, you had your, your, your second tidbit of information. Yeah, and quickly on that, the Kristen Scott Thomas one, I'm always like, why does she stand so close to the thing? It's like, step back a little, you'd never be able to get you. <laughs> um, yeah, the other one was just sort of about the script. So um, obviously when Sidney Pollock was on, um, I can't remember the names of the writers now, it's gone, but they did, they wrote American Graffiti and worked with George Lucas on some things. Um, he wasn't keen on their script. There was elements they liked, but it involved like a storm and all that sort of stuff. And he wasn't keen on it. So he brought in David Kep to write the script, which they then, with that script, got Tom Cruise to sign on because they weren't going anywhere until Tom Cruise signed on. Um, when Cruise came on, he told Paula Wagner to tell De Palma that he had to fire David Kep because he wanted to bring on Robert Town to write the script. Uh, so De Palma did that. Um, Town came on, apparently he wanted to do Notorious. He just kept telling everybody, let's just do Notorious, which is mm. what he eventually did for MI2. Um, but the others didn't want to do that. They weren't keen, didn't like Robert Towns. Um, De Palma says in the interview, he was disappointed with Robert Towns. It's like, you know, it's Robert Towns. He was expecting amazing things. He was, like, he was just really disappointed with churned out kind of thing. And um, so they paid, they brought David Kett back in to sort of, and paid him a shitload of money, apparently. Uh, to incorporate some of the stuff from Tang's script that worked, because basically all they wanted Tang to do was like do pad out the character beats and some of the dialogue and that. It just wasn't quite there in Kep's script. They so basically paid a lot yeah. of money to get the original script with a few tweaks. But because Robert Tang was the one doing all the press from the in junket interviews, I remember because De Palma didn't do any interviews. He um, no weirdly at the time of the film, I think he'd stepped away from it. I don't think he. I think he's warm to it now, but. I, got the feeling that he wasn't enamoured with the experience of making Mission Impossible at the time. Well, it definitely wasn't sold as a De Palma film, was it? No, because, I mean, they asked him to do the sequel, and he was like, yeah. no, I've done it. <laughs> He's like, really, do we need to do more missions? Because then they brought in Oliver Stone to do Mission Impossible 2 before John Woo came on. So somewhere out That there, would have been a different take. There's, there's a script for Oliver Stone's um, Mission Impossible 2. Uh, which I assume I he's going to hunt in a wheelchair and <laughs> yeah, go on oh, about well, the JFK I mean, conspiracy. Just, to, <laughs> just to actually, just if you don't, you you brought it up, and I so I'm going to go there, right? But I am. You've got to look. I know Tom Cruise is considered to be a, a certain, should we say, character? Okay, yeah. uh, whatever. But I think it's really, really important that you have to disassociate the actor from the character. Right? Oh yeah, no, definitely, one hundred percent. And uh, I know that you feel this way, but I'm just trying to. I'm just playing my putting my cards down on the table. I love watching Tom Cruise in films. Same. I mean, there's very. I'll, I'll watch any film with Tom Cruise in. It's not be just because it's Tom Cruise, but there's there's a certain magic that he brings. You know, I think you he's know, got that years... movie star presence that you don't necessarily get in a lot of actors anymore. It's very much classic Hollywood style oh, movie man. star, I, but I, in a contemporary. I've just era. recently, I've just recently finished teaching another one of the greatest films, if not up in the top five, if not in the top one greatest films ever made, is Casablanca. Right, I've just finished teaching that, which is just peak classic Hollywood and we're looking at um, Ingrid Bergman is just a, just a stunning on the screen and just such a great actress as well yeah. but Humphrey Bogart this what he brought to that role was you it's lightning in a bottle you just can't it's almost in, uh, inquantifiable as to what he can bring and 
it's not always the case with Tom Cruise and probably more often than not, it's not, but there are so many, you probably got, you, even something like um, the, the first of the Jack Reacher films, right? I wasn't really impressed with the second one, but the first one. No, I loved the first one. Really just, you know, and, and, and also like, that was around the time of Oblivion and so forth. And he was good in that. And, uh, he, to me, he's immensely watchable for the same reasons that someone like Bogey was what is was watchable, or yeah, um, Brinner or you know, just just certain actors, and I don't know if we can say in twenty twenty actresses as well, but I'm just going to say it anyway, um, and certain actresses like Ella, um, Sigourney Weaver, I find immensely watchable yeah. as well, yeah. and of course Jodie Foster, and you know. There's just certain people there that to watch, but this going back to what we were saying just a minute ago, this this film was marketed as a Tom Cruise blockbuster vehicle, wasn't it? And De Palma yeah. just wasn't even in the picture. No, it, it was very much a this film only gets made if it's a Tom Cruise film. That was because I think De Palma even told him with the David Kep script is like, look, if you don't sign on now, we're not going any further. So. <laughs> Because, you know, the studio wants to do it as a Tom Cruise film. Because, obviously, Mission Impossible was, well, well, it was a brand. It wasn't a household name brand. It wasn't like Batman or Superman, where you can just cast any unknown in the role and sell it on the... Uh, and, it, of course, this was the first one in the what was to now, as we know, a massive fra- uh, franchise. Not just a series, but a franchise. But back yeah. then, it's not, like, it's not like Mission Impossible had a huge amount of clout, was it? No. Well, no, that's it. Happy I mean, Days, I, the movie. <laughs> sort of naturally leading into the sequels, but I was surprised it got a sequel. I loved it, but it sort of because there was a four year gap as well. And it, well, Mission Impossible. There was li- yeah, there was little columns in Empire about a Mission Impossible 2, but I just generally didn't think we'd ever see a Mission Impossible 2. Because again, it's before the days of, with a few notable exceptions, it was before the days of the franchise. Yeah. It's yeah, certainly I mean, it was- films of that ilk. The thing is, though, it was I always felt like Mission Impossible was teed up. Not necessarily was going to be converted, but teed up to be... Oh, no, I, uh, I thought it was teed up for a franchise. I just didn't think we'd ever get a sequel. Partly because films I loved at that time were generally the ones that fell into obscurity. But also teed up to be a competitor to James Bond. Yeah. Because this was also the era of the Brosnan Bond, wasn't it? Yeah, 95, so just before. I think the two went into production around the same time, but obviously yeah, Mission Impossible takes longer than a... But of course, there's no there's no certainty in Hollywood. But um, and and you you sorry, you, I just don't want to mishear you when you say this. But you said you were pleased. You were you like Mission Impossible too, right? You're pleased with that movie. Uh, I'm pleased we got it. Um, my when I first saw Mission Impossible two at the cinema, I thought it was a crock of shit. I've sort of grown to enjoy it for what it is. Sort of two and three are at the bottom of the pile for me as far as the franchise go. I, I don't mean to trap you when I say this, right? But I really, I, I really don't like the phrase guilty pleasure because it implies no, I don't. an insult really to guilt should. and pleasure. Yeah, it's like, no, man, just enjoy it. It's good. If you like it, you like it. To me, guilty That's pleasure fine. is like, I really like this thing, but I know like a million people were killed to bring it to me. So. <laughs> yeah. That's, That's when it should be a guilty pleasure. pleasure. All right, Xerxes, calm down. You know, it's like, no, but um, with Mission Impossible 2, I, I really enjoyed that film when I first saw it, but I'd like, it, I it think I've It was so emphasized... different to the first one, I think, with my problem with it. Yeah. 
it, it just felt like I'd argue that out of all the Mission Impossible films, it's the one with the most disconnect from the rest of the franchise for me. Um, oh, most I mean, F, yeah. The yeah. stunts there, but it's very much a film under 2000. Oh, you should really you should be removed if, from if the canon. Can, if, you really, to, but, if you wanted to, if you wanted to capture the year two thousand in one sort of you know, little time capsule, it's that movie. It's fucking Mo- yeah, biscuit, and- leather jackets, motorbikes, shades, slow mo, <laughs> kung fu, many doves as you can get in frame as possible. But no, honestly, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't mean to like walk you into a trap there and go, "What you like Mission Impossible 2? Because I like Mission Impossible too. I probably liked it more when I saw it as a. When did it come out again? 2000. Yeah. So Same year as X-Men. Like, and that was the summer yeah, of 2000. Yeah. So that the whole leather, leather the, suit. The year that building. Cineworld launched the Unlimited card. Because I think oh, it was to go yeah, and watch so... Mission Impossible 2 that I first got an Unlimited card. And then I battered the fuck out of that for the few years I had an Unlimited card. <laughs> There's a slight aside to that. That's when they did, in the first iteration of the Unlimited card, unless memory uh, does not serve me as well as it should, I, they they gave you cards, but they didn't have um, photos on them. They took and... your photo in the cinema, in the foyer, and then it was printed out and you cut it onto a cardboard card and they sent another one off for you to get the plastic credit card type card. <clears throat> right, so I'm, I'm pretty certain the very first one, though, they didn't have any photo, it just had your name on. Um, and so my friends and I were clubbed together and we, I think it was like £10 a month or something. Yeah. And it also wasn't, a, it was a monthly thing, but it wasn't subscription. You, you, you just renewed just it when you went, didn't you? Uh, yeah, that's right. And so between about 10 of us, we probably put a quid in and each had this card. <laughs> it was a knackered card by the end of the month because we'd all gone to see um, all these movies. I think... I, I, I see this I, is your 10th time seeing Eyes Wide Shut, Mr. Beamish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what year did you say the Unlimited card came out? 2000. 2000. So that was. Oh, actually, no, it might have been that... 99. No, I, th- I think it was, it was, ni- it was 99. Th- it was, yeah. I think it was 99 because the reason I say this, and this is so I think going 2000 was when it became the subscription thing. I think 99 was the, like, you know, buy it once a month. The reason I say that is because I've got a distinct memory in my head that the most used two films that were used to watch that card with were The Sixth Sense and uh, Fight Club. For me, my friends, and we, I remember going to see those those pair of films back to back using that card, and then coming out and handing it to my friend, and they went in and watched both of them back to back. I think, <laughs> but then again, that was in the late teens, in the in the late nineties. So, to be honest with you, that might just have been a fever dream. <laughs> no, I mean that whole period was just any day off. I'd go and watch one or two films. I, like I say, I abused that unlimited card. It's not worth and it now. I've got Peel kids. Center. I can barely get to the cinema, but, <laughs> but at Your the time, was, that's so it. really uncomfortable. <laughs> but so yeah, sort of on the uh, sequels. Then, sort of, did they go where you thought they'd go based on the first one, or did you mention that you wouldn't? Again, this isn't a trap. This sounds like a trap. This is this is the the Mister Beamish teacher thing where I try and get out <laughs> of you through leading and actually just lead you in down a conversational path that I want to go in anyway. It's a bit of the psychology I play with my kids. Um, but you mentioned that you, you weren't enamoured with Mission Impossible 3 so much, right? I'm not. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I think, I don't know what it is about it I don't, that doesn't just click with me. 
I think it felt, I mean, it was like for the third time we're doing him dangling from a ceiling kind of thing. It was a variation on it, but it was still there. And I don't know, it just felt a little bit, I didn't engage with the story. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy. I thought he was great. Yeah, yeah, agree. I think it was the seeing Ethan Hunt at a party, just living a suburban life kind of thing. I was like, this feels odd. <laughs> so, and, yeah, um, yeah. And talking about traffic and waves of... Uh, Rippling traffic. That's it. And like, you know, 20 minutes of him running and are we having another corrupt IMF agent as the bad guy? <laughs> it just started so, to feel a little bit flat and samey for me. Um, I've I'm watched really, it since and sometimes I really enjoy it and other times it's a bit like, like I say, that one and Mission Impossible 2 sit at the bottom for me because there are times when I can watch them and really enjoy them and then there are times where I watch them and just like, eh, let's put on Ghost Protocol. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really with you on that. I'm really with you on that. And um, I was so looking forward to watching Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. Um, well, it felt the, like a return to the first one kind of in vibe. But in a, in a really clumsy way. And yeah. really, to me, the, the, the problem with that was J.J. Abrams. That was just everything that J.J. Abrams can do right but does do wrong, Yeah, he did in that film. So the whole mystery box element. I mean, you've got a film called Mission Impossible and the whole set piece about this, what is it, the rabbit's foot, wasn't it? Yeah. Where you had to go and get over there. And it's like, this is the most secure environment. This is the this is like breaking into the Pentagon within the Pentagon. You know, you'd never get in. And instead of showing us, like De Palma would have shown us and he'd have been clever with it and he'd have... And likewise, in the later films, they did, though, they, you know, they're breaking into the Kremlin and everything. They yeah. showed how they got through. They, they actually, but of course, for me, J.J. Abrams just chickened out. He just went, and it, the whole mystery box of, like, not only how did they get the rabbit's foot, but the rabbit's foot being a MacGuffin just seemed to be just lazy to me. And just like, well, yeah. no, we don't need to tell them, and we not tell them because that's the point. And it's like, it's because you don't know what it is. <laughs> don't try and fool us. Um, but, uh, it's the one yeah, film also, I could struggle to tell you what the plot is. Yeah, like all the seven, others, I yeah. three is just kind of like a weird, blurry memory. Oh, yeah, and that happened. I, I think yeah, you and I are definitely on the same page there, and uh, it, it surprises me because so many people really. Maybe it's because it was compared to two, and I can understand why people don't like two. Yeah, because a lot of people um, consider it to be the best one, or very, uh, you know, the return to form. And for me, it's. It's not, and then I—I I mean, it's it lays the groundwork for what followed. Yes, I mean, arguably yeah. that feels more like the start of a franchise. With thematically, you have the Simon Pegg character running through. You have the thing of uh, Michelle Monaghan's character, even though she's not in all the films, running through as a thread underneath. But she is a key yeah. plot uh, point and and character driver for the Ethan Hunt character from then on. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. It's like it did, it definitely hit the reset button in a very bland way to, yeah. for me. It didn't do it, it. There was nothing brave about it. There was nothing that was really extraordinary. I mean, there was these, you know, it was basically like the, the when Lost started going weak, um, <laughs> you know, it had all that potential to be really quite, quite, interesting again and then they just run out of ideas but they kept trying to pretend that they had loads of ideas and to me that's what mission impossible was was it wasn't even you know obviously there's the great difference between just copying 
and then homage and yeah. homage you need some integrity to it it needs to be um uh, true to the source and understand what the soul of it is in order to be able to homage it otherwise yeah, just it needs to have a reason family. doesn't it it's... and to me the mission impossible 3 was just a weak like facsimile yeah um but going forward to me when it really got into its stride and it didn't it wasn't without its flaws but it got into its stride as you mentioned about like you know resetting the franchise was the fourth the fourth yeah. film um which is still watchable now i think i don't think it's i've rewatched it about a year or two ago and i didn't think it was quite as good as maybe it's because like it's mentioned before about how the first film was it dated or not and there's some technology in there that really dates it but i think in a nice way it really hit you know with the, the laptops of the era and the video and then but four is quite prevalent with the iphone isn't it yeah through the iphone four and then instantly like a year later that's outdated just that technology so the film feels a bit outdated yeah you- i mean you're always going to get that now with technology unfortunately by the time the film comes out it's obsolete technology <laughs> unless you've got oh, right and it's kind of thing you know what primarily for me I, I've my students, this is my mantra, they know I say, I hate mobile phones. I hate, yeah. I hate smartphones. I can't live without one now in this model, yeah. like no one else can't, but <laughs> I, I despise it. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's, it's a ball in a chain and it's just eroding our culture and our society and our ability to discourse with each other. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's not good. And then to have it invade my, my art form that I hold so dear, and and it just there's nothing in a spy film that can't be solved with a mo- without a, with a mobile phone. Eh? You know, yeah, you can like, shoot any problem. It's, it's the whole thing. It's like horror films, isn't it? Logically, yeah. with mobile phones, a horror film should be over relatively quickly now. <laughs> Which is why, and this this isn't necessarily the case for Mission Impossible films, but I thought what might be an interesting move for a Bond film series of films going forward might be to just go back to the 60s yeah i don't think they do it i think because of the product placement is such a key part of raising the money for the films that you kind of have to have it set contemporary i think you just i mean i've just learned to accept that in about five years time i'm going to look back at that film and go look at the size of that fucking thing he's got there Um, i think the later mission films get away with it a bit more i think because they go a bit more spy tech rather than you know, standard tech we are. I think for me, the Mission Impossible exactly. gradually got better again to the point where I I adore Fallout. It's it's not a perfect film. It has flaws. But as a piece of cinema, I adore it. I, I'm, the most film I'm most excited for this year now is the new Mission. Yeah. It's, um, so I th- I, that Fallout, I mean, I thought Rogue Nation actually was a pretty good movie. I think yeah. I haven't seen it once, but I enjoyed it. And it felt like a good part one for Fallout, actually. See, the Disappointment of Three, I stopped watching at the cinema, so Four and Five, I missed at the cinema. Um, I enjoyed Four, and then I thought, well, rule of average, then I'll probably dislike Five. And as it was, I thoroughly enjoyed Five when I eventually saw it as well, so I had to go and watch Fallout at the cinema. And um, it was totally worth it. And I love that it's almost the spiritual sequel to the first one, and you have references to Max, with obviously Max's daughter being in it. And when I so watched it, I was like, are they referencing Vanessa Redgrave? Like, that's <laughs> fucking awesome. So, of course, the, one of the things that 
is just so all pervasive with modern films now is just this constant harking back to nostalgic reference yeah. and, um it the, anytime like if you're watching rogue one and you've got the, the ugly dudes from the canteen and they appear and it just removes you from yeah. the from the diegesis of the world first even a split second unnecessarily um i but, think it's worse in things like that than it is in something like ghostbusters afterlife where it's purely built on the nostalgia yeah, so I think so there you is know a, going in that you're going to be hit on the head with that, and that's absolutely and fine. And there's a place for it because it seems like the, it's the integrity of it is built into the, the narrative, whereas sometimes it. I think the difference between that and what you just said there is because it has a purpose for yeah. the world, whereas for other things, and as much as I do love Rogue One, and we'll talk about that maybe another day, but um, the it does seem that there's bits in there that are just for fan service. I think it's the need for the YouTube content. So you need yeah. the fan videos where they dissect all the Easter eggs you may have missed. I think that's why that shit's in there. And some of it's oh, nice. Like the just... stuff in the background that you're not going to notice on the first view and it's there for later view. so viewing. cynical. But yeah, so no, 100%. Man, you've just nailed it. Like with the on my youtube feed recommended videos i've got a load of like the 150 easter eggs from the latest boba fett yeah. episode that you missed it's like, i don't look i look how much star wars shit i've got behind I me know. i know it or if i've missed it i don't care i'll watch it i'll catch it on a rewatch or i'll never see it again you know what let's let's focus on the the product that's now yeah. the piece of art that's in front of me rather than having to feel some sort of like spiritual link with this text because i spotted the fact that there was a <laughs> scarab in this in the sand that some tuscan raiders stepped on that had some you know whatever that's it all that whole you but know the, what that was that was a reference to this it's like i don't give yeah, a fuck uh, i'd love it if there was some like secret uh, internet box or something that all these easter eggs led to and when it opened up the, 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 you know the one guy yeah, it was a bit like the Ready Player One thing. He got the, you know, he got to, he opens it up and it's like, oh, it's like a Zelda box opening up in front of him, and it just goes wanker as he opens it up. <laughs> you idiot! You've wasted your life. Just enjoy the movie. That's it. That's it. I mean, I'm all for like you know IMDb trivia and looking through that shit, but to just cynically put stuff in films based on that so that people are going to go, oh fuck, was that in it? I missed it. I got to go back and rewatch it. So I say I loved the reference to Max. It was nicely done. It didn't take me out of the film. It felt in universe. Sort of brought me a little nostalgia feel for the original. But it's not. Don't get me wrong. It's not. It's not wrong to have that. And I did. I like that. I like that. And I could see it coming. But in and and it was delivered in a way that was appropriate for the narrative and for the plot. And it just yeah, it was good. Um, It's just that it's. You know that famous welcome to the desert of the real from the Matrix, yeah. and actually they kind of that's a very literal interpretation of what <laughs> Baudrillard meant when he meant that actually in the ultra in the post postmodern world, what we've got is just facsimile of facsimile of facsimile of facsimile. Really just what was said in Fight Club when it says when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, the original is so far gone that there's no truth left to it. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. what what really um annoys me. Is that the the truth, the essence of what actually was pure and what was true, and that yeah, we experienced it back in the early eighties when we were watching uh, Empire and Return of the Jedi on 
ITV at Christmas or whatever. You know, we experienced it then, and that was good. And but people, audiences, this you know, my our boys can watch it now and still have that sense of authenticity. But it yeah. seems to be so diluted when it's just it becomes a self parody. Yeah, and not in a clever way that arguably the newest Matrix was, where they were we were with so being so self referential. It was to put a dig against the industry. This is just a way to, as you said, get clicks and to get YouTube views. But with that, I can give it that. I just think that they missed a massive trick with the ending of Fallout. Yeah. Which was, I think they should have let the bomb go off. Spoilers, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I'll put a thing, that. You know, there'll be obvious spoilers for, you know, Mission Impossible and the franchise as a whole. Um, yeah, that I just think been, for once. Yeah, have them lose. Just for once, for it to be a mission, because listen, Tom Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt has become at the end of that film, he's defeated the nuclear bomb. Yeah. Where do you go? There's no. He's infallible. He's a superhero. Um, you've got there's what would have been so. Bearing in mind, obviously they're making a new one now, right? Yeah, well, it's so, going to be two, isn't it? So I'm wondering if it's going to end on a sort of this next one will end on a the team failing kind of thing and then the one that follows directly will be so there's two movies right i didn't know that i thought it was just the next one but what personally i thought and i remember coming out of the cinema and thinking that was a hell of an experience of a movie a great one it was such such a rock and roll ride and and clever and tom cruise is great in it and henry cavell was just brilliant in it and you know like it all the other characters tied in well and it tied in the previous few well but i thought for once, wouldn't it be great if it may be he because there were two bombs to memory, weren't yeah. there? And he deactivated the one that saved the city or whatever, but the one that was going to kill everything that he loved, everything that was left, yeah. that was personal to him, everything that those four, those three or four films previously had led to, if that got wiped out and he survived, but he'd saved the civilians and necessarily the world. How great would that be? It's the classic conundrum of you've got the two trains going down the track, yeah. haven't you? Sorry, the one train going down the two tracks, and you can you can leave it, and you know it's going to run over the five people who you don't know, but you and by leaving it, you haven't actively killed them, have you? Because you didn't put the train go. Or if you change the direction of the train on the track, it will run over, say, the love of your life. Yeah. And it's an impossible, it's a conundrum. It's like an impossible puzzle to solve. But you, so one way you you kill the person you love, but you save all these other people, these other lives with children and all these others, or you let them go. And think of what that does to a character who up until this point has been infallible. And to yeah. me, I just think they missed a trick. Yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where some people need to start as much as I'm not, you don't always have to kill people off, but I do think, I mean, I'd be, it'd hit me hard if they killed off Luther at this point, but mm. at a certain point, Luther, Simon Pegg, I mean, they're the sort of carryovers that have been in the most films. Now one of them has to die <laughs> just for their well, stakes. Cause again, you go back to the first film, the stakes are there because his entire team is wiped out pretty much. And Precisely. the two that survive are fucking traitors. <laughs> And you've got to think, like, what purpose for the, the lifting of the plot do these characters do? And 
if it's to just get him out of the scrape with technology or direct him down this alleyway or at the last moment give him a code to a nuclear bomb or whatever well if that's the case why don't I just watch the last ones yeah yeah again it's the the cynicism of the system that that produces these movies where they have so much potential and you're working with the some of the best people in the industry you know Tom Cruise we've mentioned about Tom Cruise before and these other colleagues he works with and the, these amazing cinematographers and these stunt workers, you must've seen the, uh, the behind the scenes um, for, uh, segments on how they were doing the real stunts with for fallout. It's just yeah. mind blowing. So why not be, just be a bit braver with the, the narrative? Yeah. I mean, like I say, I, I mean, they brought Christopher McQuarrie back again, which was something because it was always, pretty much an entire slate clean wasn't it apart from tom cruise and ving reigns with each film so they changed the director the composer all that sort of thing so they all felt like different things and then they seem to have hit a stride with christopher mcquarrie where off the back of jack reacher he brought him in to do the mission films and they seem to have hit a stride now with him where they're keeping him in to do a complete story arc so at a certain point you've got to have that empire strikes back esque getting haven't you the I hope so. I hope um, so. Like I say, just... with these next two being two films back to back, it's got to end on a a sort of bum note because otherwise, what's the point of it being a back to back film? Also, the, the cynicism of it—they kind of go, "Well, obviously, audiences would just go, well, it's comparing it to the last Bond film, isn't it?" You know, yeah, spy movie and a bum note at the end of that potentially. And... Well, that's the problem when you've got so many films that are coming out as big franchise films and actually they just all follow the same model. But Yeah, well, I mean, you don't want to you don't want to break with the formula that's working for you, I suppose. But but yeah, it's um I don't know whether Jeremy Renner's coming back. Because I think originally why... they were supposed to kill him off at the beginning of Fallout, but he wasn't gonna come back just to do that. So But this is why I love the first one. Yeah, one of the many reasons is because it was it did take those bold moves to wipe out the team so early on, and um, we didn't have as much as I love Ethan Hunt's character in the latter films, and he is incredibly watchful and really exciting. You know, he does his halo jumps, he does his fighting with Henry Cavell in the Paris bathroom. It's ridiculous, but it's so exciting to watch. Yeah. You cannot, you'd have to be dead not to be excited by it. <laughs> But uh, fucking Henry Cavill's reloading arms. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean those, those are the best bits from the from the promo trailers, aren't yeah. they? I think I actually gr- tried to grow a moustache after that, just to just to just do that in the mirror. I was like, I might do Movember this year, just so I could <laughs> yeah. roll my sleeves. I'm walking to work like. <laughs> I was walking to class, and my students were going, "Why have you got your sleeves rolled up and doing that with your arms?" There, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm Henry Cavill." <laughs> Like, no, you're not, and you're like, you're right. I'm not, am I? Oh well. Mustache that do you be Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, but the first you know, the first one is we've we've lauded um for the good 20 or 30 minutes or so. This this is for me, it was perfectly timed in how it came out. I yeah. mean, for Tom Cruise's career, it was probably perfectly timed for his career. Um, it set this this franchise up in a way and it went in some interesting directions following um, interesting can be a word used in many different contexts of course I mean yeah um, I suppose it was bold in what it did 
going on. Uh, yeah, you know, it tried and, different things to find its foot in. I think it eventually found it by three into four. But so, but as I said, I, I even now, I you know, a film from 20, 26 nearly, years, 20, 20, <laughs> nearly, nearly uh, half a quarter of a century ago, I still use it now to teach yeah. my students with. And I still feel of it. I still feel like it's a modern film. It's not like I'm going back and using um, Citizen Kane to teach them how to do uh, cinematography. Although I do, but yeah. I don't use the whole film necessarily. But um, this one I do. It's just it has got the package for me at least, and yeah. from a, a technical perspective, but as well as a, 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 a cultural like zeitgeist perspective and a, a cool perspective and an action perspective. And as I said. In some ways, quite comparable to how the original Matrix was as well. How that embodied amazing, um, spectacular set pieces with quite cerebral, clever um, script writing, um, brilliant technical work, be it in the, the visual effects and the cinematography and the and performances were were solid. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say, for me. It- that was sort of what kicked off the current mega blockbuster summer thing. Like I say, we had blockbuster summers before. You could possibly argue from Jurassic Park, really, but sort of from '96 onwards, I can tell you what the big summer movie was for each year, up to a certain point. Right, and as I struggle with some of the early '90s ones as to what was the big summer movie kind of thing, but it, it sort of it was a big change in that aspects well i think it was the thing that made took tom cruise from you know superstar to megastar yes and agreed i think you know th- it's just that he picks his films a bit more carefully one but, thing i've just realized actually is you just mentioned something that had me thinking you've mentioned jurassic park and i remember i guess the tester is do you remember when we were kids and you would have to wait for it to come out on video yeah and wait something like to jurassic to the video park. shop and then come out on video to buy Exactly. It was like a two-tier system, right? Yeah. So it probably took, what, 12 months to 18 months for it to be able to be bought for home media release after it finished at the cinema? Yeah. Right? And then after that, the next way you got to watch it was when it finally got released on broadcast on terrestrial TV for us non-Sky poor... It's like a year or two later... So I remember that normally a movie like Jurassic Park, its big release would, of course, be at Christmas, wouldn't it? It'd be like yeah. on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or Boxing Day, and that was, and it would be all over the front of the radio times now. But that would be about three to four to possibly five years after it came out at the yeah. cinema. Maybe, I don't know. And I remember the similarly with Adam's Family. That was a big thing. That was like Jurassic Park came out on the Christmas. It just seems so old at that point. I think. I think by the time Jurassic Park had come out on the TV, you think BBC One. It. it um, I think the Lost World had already been out in the cinema. So yeah. it was so. But I can't remember. You just. I, I agree with you. I think. I think Mission Impossible did mark a watershed for a great many things. But I can't remember when it first was screened on terrestrial TV. No, I can't. I think by that point, because I had the video, I dropped off of watching them on TV. I said the last big movie I remember coming on TV was, um, well, before Jurassic Park, was probably when Robin and Prince of Thieves got his big Christmas debut in. Yeah. That was sort of the last one for me, before the uh, One Foot in the Grave Christmas special. (laughs) 
course. I'm very sorry to hear you say that, Claire. Ethan. Yes. Ethan Hunt, darling. You remember him, don't you? You knew about Jim. Of course. Just exactly when he knew is something of a question. Mind telling me, Ethan? Before or after I showed up in London? Before London. But after you took the Bible from the Drake Hotel in Chicago. They stabbed it, didn't they? Those damn Gideons. Ethan, if you knew about Jim, why? Why the masquerade? Why take the risk? Well, Claire, you've asked the question. And you are the answer. I knew about Jim. But he didn't know about you. In all fairness, Ethan, Claire was never convinced her charms would work on you. But I was supremely confident, having tasted the goods. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, Ethan. Let's just get the money and get out of here. Yes, let's get the money. Ethan, the money. Give her the money. You earned it. Old dumb million. No, Claire was wrong about one thing, Jim. Oh? What's that? So yeah, I mean that pretty much I think covers Mission Impossible. I I mean I could talk about the film all day. There's probably a million things we didn't even get into that we could have touched on, but not wanting to put in a six hour epic Chris McQuarrie level interview kind of. <laughs> no, I mean we didn't we didn't even talk about the obvious thing, which no. was the, the most parodied scene, second only probably to bullet time in the Matrix. <laughs> uh, we didn't even touch that. It's like it never even existed. So um but maybe that, that could be for like a, an anniversary yeah. visit. <laughs> yeah, well, 26 this year, so we're not far off 30 years of anniversary. <laughs> Which is fucking scary. Like I said, I still remember going to the cinema to watch it and not getting in. So. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also at that age where somebody says 20 years ago, I'm like, what, so like the 70s? <laughs> I know, oh man, you know, that's something of our generation though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when we talk about the the... We're literally talking about last century, and some, and you know, not like 1999 on the 11th of December. Or, you know, it was like halfway through that decade. Of, <laughs> <laughs> so when anyone says the year 2000 or whatever, it still feels relatively recent, even though it's sadly anything but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all a wonderful movie montage in my head these days, but. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um I like to end these with the uh 
Bernard Pivo questions that were made famous by the end of Inside the Actor's Studio. So if you fancy sort of doing 10 quick fire questions with me, uh, that'd yeah, be cool. So, all right. Uh, question one. What is your favourite word? Well, I'm going to be immensely and imaginative with this one. And say it's the, the F word. Um, because I just I, I just find it so... I love it. It's, yeah. I say it far too frequently, despite, and I can't say it here because I'm a teacher. So if there's a recording of me saying <laughs> it, I get into a lot of trouble. But um, yeah, and also just for the record, I don't say it in the classroom either. <laughs> At least nothing that my students would know not to tell anyone that I did. But uh, <laughs> I think 99% of my favourite lines from film involve that word. So it would it would have to be really. It's. I mean, I've said it before because other people say it as their favourite curse word. It, um... It's just wonderful. It's such a versatile word. It can be used as punctuation. It can be used as a space filler. It can be used as an adverb. <laughs> it's just a wonderfully versatile word. Um, all right, to counter that, what is your least favourite word? Well, this is this is kind of a cringy one, but it's because I'm such a film fanatic as you are. It would have to be reboot. Yeah. Just far. I cringe whenever I hear it because I just know what's coming. Was it the planet, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes was the first one to use a reboot? I don't think I'd heard it before mm-hmm. that. So I think they didn't oh, want to call it a remake. I think, it, yeah, I, you know what? I think you're right. So, And it's not right, like it, it, it got out of the gates running. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know what? I think you're right there. Yeah, like I said, I don't remember it being used before, so... Now everything's a fucking reboot or a recall, or and that and that is why I like it because it's just the same old shit. You know there was an ad exec somewhere who was like, "We fucking nailed it," (laughs) and they're still doing it. Take the rest Um, of the day off. (laughs) I I mean, like I saw the Matrix movie recently, and the trailer that went with that was the Scream one, and I honestly thought it was a joke. Yeah, see, I, I just I, I want to see the new school. I want to see the new Matrix as well. I just haven't got rain to it because at the moment, the cinema, unless it's something I really, really, really want to see, I just cannot be asked with it just because yeah. everything and it's just such an effort. So. <laughs> yeah, but I just I, honestly, I don't, I because I instantly I knew what it was, yeah. I knew that it was, but I thought it was a yet another parody, and I couldn't figure out whether it was another scary movie parody. And then it was like, no, it's a it's a proper straight face screen movie, and yeah. it's even more serious than the first one was. <laughs> oh my god, so it's gone all the way round now. Going back to that desert of the real quote from Baudrillard, all <laughs> all rea- all of the real authenticity has just evaporated to the point where even the parodies become serious and then they'll become parodies again and we won't know where we began. So I hate reboot. <laughs> I hate the word reboot. All right. What turns you on? Surprise! <laughs> Cut you off there. Sorry, yeah. So um, <laughs> kind of like the antithesis to reboot is yeah. surprise. And I think that that surprise is... Um, the tonic to so many, so many ills. When I felt down in my life, a little surprise comes the way um, and picks you up. And you know, like the surprise to be invited to come and enjoy this evening with you and talk with you—that was a nice surprise. And when 
you find out you've got another kid on the way. That's a bit of a surprise. And yeah. that's not, a whole lifetime of nice things come <laughs> off the back of that. So, yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, surprise is the spice of life, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, cinematic surprises as well, just keeping it on a filmy level. Yeah. Yeah, I, so... I, um, sorry, go on. I struggle to remember sometimes the last time I was genuinely surprised in a film. Because they're mostly... If it's a Marvel film, you've got a pretty good idea what you're going in for. Or they're sequels, or like you say, reboots, or franchise films, or based on an existing IP. So very little to get genuinely surprised about. The closest I've got to it in recent years was The Joker. And I tell you what, I wasn't surprised by it because I'm going to, I'm claiming this one. When the first teaser trailer came out, do you remember the teaser trailer for the Joker when it had that little song from the sixties playing in it? It was, it was over his face, over whacking Phoenix face that was projecting and it just had some shots of the, the mask. And I, I thought this is so, this reminds me so much of David Fincher's Zodiac. And that was like, that was an underrated hit. um, Classic. I thought this is this has got something to it. This can be really good, and then sure enough, Joker came out and it grossed like twenty billion dollars on about a three dollar budget. So, yeah, I'm, I must admit I'm in the not particularly a fan camp on. Okay. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. It was fine. It was just, meh, whatever. <laughs> um, what turns you off? Right. So I guess this is all thematically linked in with what I said about reboot and then surprising. What turns me off is creative laziness. So, and just laziness in general. To be honest yeah. with you. So, um, you know, I teach the creative arts, and I, I tell you, I've worked with some young people who I am immensely jealous with with just what they can do. Part of the course I teach is um, they make their own five-minute short film, and some of the work is just mind-blowingly inventive and creative and especially through the last couple of years we've had with lockdown and so forth i admire their, their them so much for what they've brought to the table um but and i'm not speak talking about my students in particular i just find that when it comes to creativity it is there is an element we have to put put a bit of your soul into it to get out and i know with that your film that you made the seventh wave wasn't it you you really you did pour part of your soul into that one to make it and um that's the antithesis of laziness that's yeah. that's where you you distill a little piece of you into something through a sheer act of will and that's what i admire but on the on the opposite side of it i just find creative laziness and and tying back into the industry with the whole idea of reboots and the, the whole culture of just rehashing i find to be just just painfully tiring and and just destroying of something that I love yeah that could blossom into something yeah. so much more than what it is I've said it before to Andy because I watched that um those who wish me dead that Angelina Jolie film and mm-hmm. it reminded me of I mean a different sort of level but those 40 million dollar dollar budget thrillers you used to get you know largely they had a cinema release but they largely found their life on tv sort of patriot games would probably fall into that because you know you're possibly slightly higher budget but things like your lincoln lawyers even possibly or it was a tom cruise one but the firm the grisham ones from the 90s those yeah, sort of I mean, films like, don't sort of get made anymore because they're 
in they're neither too expensive to fall into the cheapy ones, but not expensive enough to warrant sort of getting a big cinema release. Those were the genuine surprises. Those films you discover on BBC One on a Saturday night that you'd watch because, like you say, we only had four fucking channels. <laughs> Whatever your parents were watching, that's what you watched. <laughs> Something like Rounders would yeah. be a good example of saying that. Or, or even Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. You know, it, you know, like something that really, and you know, you look back at those movies, you know, they're bloody good movies, and then audiences now would still say the same. But I think you're right. It's either so cheap that you could make it on a YouTube budget, and then you just get the ad revenue, or so expensive it's got to cost 250 million and be part of a franchise. That's it. That's it's costs you more to market it than sort of make it kind of thing there. <laughs> but um, where were we at? Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Did we do that one? Yeah, no. What sound or noise do you love? So I'm going to be really cheesy and corny here and say, right, I love, I, especially when I think back to when they were youngsters, my kids laughing. I think any yeah. parent kind of loves their kids that they're going to So sorry, that's the cheesy one out of the way. But from a more filmy one, um, just the sound of um, starts of move, the start of the movie. So also being in the, the theatre and you've got the, the lights come down and you've got the clicking of the, the um curtain as it pulls back for the cinema scope screen or whatever but also just the, the classic eye dents so what star wars fan with the original ones with under with the 20th century fox fanfare it's always a classic uh but i particularly you know like even the sound of the rank gong yeah and um what the thing are um Artifacts of movies that are so long gone now, but they still are so in, somehow ingrained in the psyche of, of culture that we still know that from maybe where our teenage years and younger, the sound of like the touchstone. Yeah. And it just those ones, they're just really, it's just a little memory from back. It's like smelling something from your childhood. It just takes you back. And then also, the, I've got a third one actually. And I've never, I never owned one, but I love the sound of it because it, to me, is the sound of the '90s, and I love the mid '90s, yeah. and that's the sound of a PlayStation One booting up. <laughs> and I never had one, but I love it. That that was on something. It might have been one of those things they put on every Christmas. That's like you know the most popular Christmas presents of whatever year. And the PlayStation One was one of those, and they played that noise. It's a bit like when you hear the um, Windows booting up noise now. Or your modem dial noise, the noise you hated at the time, but now you're just like, oh, I remember when it used to take me 20 minutes to get online. We talked about the the the, the danger of nostalgia before and how it's, you know, it could, could could be very destructive, but also there are certain elements where it just it is nice to go back to the, you know. It's the stuff that hasn't been monotonized, yeah. isn't it? There was it? that line in uh, the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually quite still pure of its time. It was yeah. before, I'll tell you what, it was before smartphones. Yeah. I won't. <laughs> If there's a log, if there was a boot up sign to an iPhone, that wouldn't be on my top list. <laughs> well, here we go then. Uh, what noise, uh, sound or noise do you hate? <laughs> well, this would be easy for your listeners after two hours of me talking. So my own voice after seven periods of teaching. Yeah. Honestly, I've had enough. <laughs> I can, you know, I don't, I like, I like showing off. Right. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that for a couple of hours and blah 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 blah. Why? 
after seven hours of it, I, I, especially if my students have had a double or two with me, it's like, I, I feel for you guys. Can you guys do the talking? Man? <laughs> it's not because I'm being a lazy teacher. It's just for Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same with male. And then I come home and there's male for me. <laughs> yeah. Busman's holiday. What? <laughs> um, right. And I think we've sort of hit on this, but what's your favorite curse word? Favorite curse word? Yeah. Or... Oh, um, yeah, I guess it doubles up with number one, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, sorry, I'm going to get two for the price of one on that. But that <laughs> saves you from listening to my voice any longer than is necessary. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this, but politician. Yeah. yeah. I love politics. I, I, I love the idea of being like a Jed Bartlett inspirational politician <laughs> yeah, oh, man, you just yeah. know that for everybody that loves you there's going to be an equal amount of people who hate everything you do <laughs> but of course like you know when i became a teacher it's inevitable because i trained as an english teacher as well as a film and media teacher and it's inevitable that you think of i'm going to be like dead poet society yeah you know and they're my my captain or my captain and all that and it's nothing like that and I know that if ever I became a politician, it would be nothing like the the, the romanticised version of the West Wing or anything that I can imagine. It's the same as it wouldn't it? That, isn't it? You always picture you're going to be like a Jonathan Kent kind of uh, to kill a mockingbird kind of idealised version of a father. The reality is kids are dicks sometimes. And Man, I <laughs> bet you might that idealised version. <laughs> if I ever became a politician, my experience wouldn't even be as nice as hanging out with Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it. It would be, you know, <laughs> Which actually, to be honest with you, is a primary reason I'd like to be a politician. Just yeah. No, but there's a load. There's a load of stuff that's wrong in the world, and I love politics. I love. This, probably my second favorite thing to to movies is politics, and I'm, a, I'm an absolute obsessive on. Um, yeah, because you, you have two screens set up to watch the election, which must have been a long one for the US one this year or last year. Oh, yeah, mate. I mean, the you know watching those January sixth things unfolding just live in front of you it's, it's just watching history unfolding in front of you but there's so much that there's you know that is right that's good and there's so much that's wrong and i i did well if i yeah. could pick another role to be able to i'd like to be able to help in a way to to help like that yeah yeah no i think like i say it's it's the idealized version isn't it but um all right what profession would you not like to do carer Right, that's not because, despite what I just said about being a politician, I would like to put the world right. Um, it's not because I don't want to care or like to care, but I just cannot begin to appreciate what those people do. Who yeah, do what they do. just can't, I couldn't. I'm not made of that. No, I couldn't I, do it. I bow in reverence to them, just uh, that. So, that's a profession I'd not like to do because I just couldn't do it. No, and it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> No, I again, I take my hat off to anybody that can do it. I just emotionally, mentally, I wouldn't be strong enough to do it anyway. Mm. Sort of, yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard enough when a person I deliver post to dies sometimes if I've got gotten yeah. to know one through doing the job. So, yeah. sort of had that intimate relationship where you are a carer. And to then go through that, I just, yeah, like I say, and that's just the physical, mental side of it. Yeah. let's not get into the squeamish side of it <laughs> and the fact that they're not paid anywhere near a fraction of what they should as well but no and 
This is where we drift into politics talk. (laughs) All right, then. Moving away, or, you know, maybe they exist hand in hand. Uh, Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Station. (laughs) (laughs) I used to... I tried to think of something profound, but then I just thought, no, I love movies, so I'm just going to check a movie reference and then just, that'll be that. (laughs) See, I... I'm constantly doing that. Um, one of the rounds I I used to work on had a station road on it, but I still, when I'm sorting the poster comes through, and every time I get one, I'm like, station. <laughs> it's Everybody a looks at me like anything you want it to. But... <laughs> there you go. But awesome. Well, I mean, if you can't end on a Bill and Ted reference, where can you end? So... Oh, man, it's, life's not worth living if you can't do that, can you? Exactly. Um, cheers for doing that, man. I really enjoyed it. Like I say, um, it w- could have gone on for much longer, but I think for the sake of people listening and, you know, given that we've got jobs we've got to get to in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, cheers for coming on, man, doing that. I really enjoyed it. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like I said um, earlier, it's been a highlight of, uh, of my January to join you. And I've been looking forward to it since you invited me um, sometime late last year. Um, so I'm glad that uh, we managed to have our paths crossed for this. Um, and uh, I certainly will enjoy listening back to it, apart from hearing my voice. Well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just listen I to you. I have to listen to it when I edit it. So that's, that's the worst thing. <laughs> but thank you also for those little um, tidbits that you picked up on there. They were interesting facts that I didn't know about. That was really, I like that. Yeah, like I say, um, if anybody wants to know more about the behind-the-scenes stuff, that Light the Fuse podcast is well worth a listen. Um, like I say, they did a two-part interview with David Kep as well. That's really interesting. And they've done some others with people involved in it. Um, so, yeah, they're well worth checking out. Um, but, yeah, like I say, I really enjoyed just talking about the film and what it meant to yourself as well. And, you know, reminiscing about the Kittridge shop. <laughs> It does. And it's, I tell you what, any excuse to talk about the the mid to late 90s, just get me involved. If you want to talk about Radiohead and the Benz or Mezzanine <laughs> and Massive Attack and all that, I'll, I'll come straight on. Awesome. But anyway, thank you very much once again, Stuart. Yeah. Cheers. See ya. Bye. Excuse me, Mr. Hunt. Would you like to watch a movie? Oh, uh, no, thank you. Would you consider the cinema of the Caribbean? Aruba, perhaps. And that was Mission Impossible. Uh, I'd like to thank Ross for coming on the episode and talking about the film with me. Um, Yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us back here in two weeks' time for another movie chat. Uh, If you enjoyed the episode and be bothered, please give the episode a share on social media and the like, uh, or ask your friends to check it out. Or don't. It's up to you. Uh, It can just be our little secret if you like. And until next time, thanks for listening, and don't forget to expect the impossible. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds.